On May 17th, 1915, the passenger ship, the Lusitania, was struck by a German torpedo. You can imagine Im immediately there was stress on the ship. And one lady said to the captain, uh, Captain, what would you like us to do? He said, stay where you are. She's going to be all right, talking about the ship. The lady asked, where do you get your information? He said, from the engine room. Well, as author Eric Larson writes, that wasn't true, but the captain had given this lady a hope, and, and that hope soon spread around the ship. And, and, and later, an, another passenger remembered saying, somebody yelling, hey, the captain says the Lusitania won't sink. And, and people broke out clapping, and, and people that were moving towards the lifeboats stepped away. Why, these people had hope that they'd be okay. And that was good until the ship started sinking. And in fact, of the 1,959 people on board, 1,198 drowned. Why so high? Well, they had a false hope. That hope was based on the captain's word, and that word apparently wasn't that trustworthy. When we talk about our faith in Christ, we, we talk about a hope and a, and a hope that's certain. Well, what's so certain about our hope? I want to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 11 and wrestle with this question. What's so certain about our hope? Now we spent these past few weeks uh, examining this letter that Paul wrote. And he started by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of salvation to reconnect people to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And it is, is the righteousness of God that, it, that is revealed in faith. And, and Paul went on to say that non-religious and religious, they, they were all accountable for, before God and, and yet they all fell short. And he introduced this gospel that, that reconnected us with God and in fact gave us a living hope, a trustworthy hope. And that's where I want to start. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, remember that term means it's just as if we haven't sinned because of our faith, we have peace with God. That, that's certainly the end of a conflict, but it's indicative of a, an overall well-being. We're good, we're right, we're connected with God. We have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, there's the mechanism again, into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in what? In hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is the greatness of God. Our hope is that we're going to see the greatness of God on display. And ultimately, that's talking about his return. That's a done deal. He's come once. He's coming back. We know how this world ends. We know how life ends. One way or another, we're going to meet Jesus face to face, either with him coming back, or if we physically die beforehand, meet him after our death face to face. What difference does knowing the end make? 
If you know me, you know I'm an avid fan of the University of Michigan. In 1997, they had a dream season. They ended up splitting the national title with Nebraska. And at one game in particular, I was watching, it was Michigan playing Notre Dame, a traditional rival. They were ahead 21 to 14 in the fourth quarter. And three times, three times, they turned the ball over, fumbled it in their own end. You would have think I would have been a nervous wreck. But I wasn't. I enjoyed that fourth quarter because I was just sure I was going to see the defense rise up and show themselves strong. That's all true, but there's a piece I'm not telling you. We spent the 1997 year in Chile. And so people would video the game for me, and by the time I got the videotape and was watching it, I knew the outcome. And in fact, they did turn the ball over three times in the fourth quarter, and I enjoyed it because I knew how it ended. Do you understand in the same way we know how this world, how our life ends. And that gives us hope that can't be taken from us. But in the midst of that hope, Paul says in verse two, we live in a state of grace. We live in the grace of God. What does that mean? The supernatural empowering. He is with us. And that allows us to step into things and do things that we couldn't have imagined. All my life, I've been someone who's afraid of heights. In my second year working with Campus Crusade at Colorado State, the university opened a new ropes course. So our director thought it would be a great experience for our team to do that ropes course together. And I was good with it until part of the exercise I saw was you climb up this ladder and you go about 20 feet up and then you walk on this wire about this thick. I ain't doing that. But there were a couple people, they, they put you in a harness and they put a rope through it and, and they stood below it and they said, I got you. I got you. Man, I'm up there 20 feet up and I'm thinking, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. But I look down there and there and there's two people who got me. If I didn't step out five, six, seven feet before I, Kind of fell off, but, but, but they had me. See, I could step into something I couldn't have otherwise done because of their presence. In the same way, God's presence in our lives allows us to step into something we couldn't otherwise do. And I think that's more critical than ever. Because we're stepping into really uncertain territory with this COVID-19. Look, I'm reading the same news stories you're reading and I'm reading the death rates going up and it's surging in Nebraska and, and where does that, and how long, and what kind of long we can do social distancing? Let's be honest, nobody knows. But here's what we do know. As we step into the unknown, God is with us. That empowers us to live in a certain way with a certain certainty a certain hope that we wouldn't otherwise have. Or you say, well, man, Andy, that, that seems great. So, so are you talking then life is trouble-free? 
No problem. Look, we know how it ends and, and we know we've got this God with us. Does that mean life's just a problem free? No, sorry, it's not. And we pick that up in verses three through five. Uh, Paul says this, and not only this, but we also catch this exalt in our tribulations. Really? I, I've been trying to avoid tribulations all my life. Now, Paul says when we come, they come our way, we can exalt in them. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, it, it brings proven character and proven character hope. There's our word again. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God, the all-powerful God who died and rose from the dead, that love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hey, I, I can't promise you a trial-free life. But I can tell you this, there's a sovereign God who has a purpose for them. Here's what he says. Tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings proven character. And proven character brings hope. You know, over the last few years, I've gotten to know a guy named Greg Buckles. Some of you may know him. Greg and I have worked together in men's ministry. And I've gotten to know him, I, I know, 36 and a half years ago. Greg went through a tribulation that, boy, I wouldn't wish on anybody. But he's agreed to share how God used that in his life. So take a minute and listen as Greg recounts his story. My name is Greg Buckholtz, and Andy's been talking on tribulation. And the greatest tribulation of my life was my divorce. When I first found out my wife was leaving, I'd gone to work that day, it was a normal day, I get home, and there's a letter taped to the outside of my door, and my other vehicle's gone. So right away I'm like, something's up. I didn't know if my son got sick or whatever. Then I opened up the letter. When I read the letter, uh, I think in divorce there's always wrong on both sides. And I realized the things that I had done wrong. But it felt like somebody had taken the heart out of my chest and just squeezed it as hard as they could. My heart just hurt so bad that I'd never had that feeling before. My concern of the time, she left the two older kids at a neighbor's house and she took my youngest son and I had no idea where she was at. Um, I had a lot of different feelings. I had feelings of uh, anger, fear, frustration, shame, embarrassment, uh, bitterness. Uh, When she left, the morning that she left, she took my daughter, who was eight at the time, and she took her around and showed her how to use the washer and dryer and different things. And uh, so my kids, I think, knew before they left for school that day. And when I picked them up, we talked a little bit about uh, mom and they're kind of asking why and uh, different questions like that. I says, it's okay. I says, we'll be okay. I wanted, I wanted to, reassure them that, that would be, they would be okay with me. All of a sudden, I'm a single dad. And I had to think about a lot of different things, got a lot of different feelings, uh, emotions, uh, 
going through your mind. Um, I had to have childcare for them in the morning, had to get them to school, had to go to work. Uh, the one thing I tried to do was to keep their life as uh, stable as I could. The one prayer I was praying constantly was to uh, get my youngest son back with my two other kids because that was vital to me was to have the kids together. I knew humanly it was not possible for that to happen. It just wouldn't happen. In the midst of this, I had uh, a lot of uh, doubt in my life. Uh, I had to continually uh, be in the Word and to pray. I got a phone call one day from my then ex-wife and she says, Craig, I've got a question for you and I don't know how you're going to answer it. She said, I want to give you Tim back. And I says, okay. She says, is that okay? I says, yeah, great, absolutely. And I'm trying to contain my excitement and my joy so she doesn't get a, that feeling that on the phone. And uh, a few days later, I picked up my son and my three kids went back together. And it was one of the most joyous uh, things in my entire life. God doesn't work on your timetable. He works on His. The lessons I've learned, number one is prayer works. It really does. And until this happened, I didn't pray much. It kept me in the Word. It kept me relying upon God because He was the one that got me through this. You have friends, you have people in the church, you have your parents uh, that sometimes you lean upon. But it was God that got me through that. Isn't that a powerful reminder that God uses tribulation to bring about perseverance? Remember, he, he got two kids you got to take care of, got to find childcare, got to provide meals. Third one, he's trying to get, I mean, you talk about building perseverance. Day after day after day, perseverance lose, leads to proven character. Man, he has to live for them and not himself. God is at work in this mess. Then you heard the story. He was praying for that third child, his, his, his youngest son, that be reunited. And eventually it happened. And in that, Greg learned the discipline of hoping in God. He's talked about it. Those, those lessons continue in his life that, that something God used. And that's part of the hope we have. It is not your life and mine. It's not going to be trial free. It's not going to be problem free. But they're not something we have to endure. God redeems. This is the hope we have. God redeems the tribulation to build perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So with that idea of hope, we, we, we center in then on verses 6 through 8, the certainty of our hope. Here we go. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, verse 8, demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. He wouldn't let us go. We were rebelling. We were shaking our fist in his face and he died for us. The all-powerful God laid down his life so we could be reconnected. And, and that is the certainty of our hope. It's not the captain of a ship telling us what we want to hear when it isn't true. It's the certainty of the all-powerful God saying, I will die for you and doing it and then rising from the dead. So we're wrestling with this question, what's so certain about our hope? What makes us different? How do we know we're not going to fall for a false hope like the people did in Lusitania? Our hope is grounded in the all-powerful God's love for us. The all-powerful God loved us enough to die for us and, and we ground our hope in that. Why does that matter? Ernest Gordon was dean of the chapel at Princeton for 26 years. He was in the Pacific Theater during World War II when he was captured as a POW by the Japanese. He was part of the, the death march of Bataan. And he was part of the group that was forced through slave labor to build the, the railroad that went between Thailand and Burma. Hundreds of Americans died and, and, and Gordon was at the point of death when a captain named Dusty Miller cared for me and, and he shared his, his precious food rations but more importantly, he shared with Gordon the hope of the gospel. Well, Gordon survived that and he had this. He said, a person can experience pain and suffering if he has hope. Look, I don't know. I don't know what COVID-19 is going to bring. But here's what I do know. There's a God who walks with us. And if we can live in that hope, we can experience whatever it is that is coming away. And you know what? COVID-19, it will come and it will go at some point. And if we survive that, there'll, there'll be something else. The certainty we have is God walks with us. So then Paul, with that in mind, talks about the beauty of the restoration we have with God in verses 9 through 11. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There are terms there, reconciliation. That means there was conflict that, that has changed. God has brought us back. We've been justified. It's just as if we've never sinned. This all happened because of the gospel message. Jesus, according to the plan of God, lived the life we were supposed to live in complete submission to the Father and trust him right up to the point he was crucified on the cross and he rose again from the dead. If you've never trusted in Christ, I want to invite you to do that right now. Right where you sit. You can be reconciled. You can be justified. You can be given right status because of what Jesus did. That's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul's premise is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it's the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For those of you who'd come to know God through Jesus Christ, would you draw on this relationship as we step into the uncertainty of COVID-19? I don't know, I, I hope there's an end to this sooner than later. But we can know because of the glorious gospel, we have a hope that will not fail, that is beyond any circumstance, that is beyond any illness, that is beyond any economic calamity. We have a God who walks with us. Just as I could look down on that ropes course and see those people saying, I've got you. God is even closer. He's in our heart. He's in our lives. And he's saying, I've got you. Would you trust in that God who gives us this certain hope? You know, one of the things we missed this year is the uh, March Madness, the basketball tournament. It's always one of my uh, more enjoyable sporting events to watch. But the end of the games are, are very interesting to me. And I, I can have no interest in a team. But if it's a close game, it, it's fascinating. It, it is riveting. And maybe it's going back and forth two or four points. And, and the team that behind is behind. And they are expending energy. And they are giving everything. And they, were hus- they are going after everything. But many times at, at some point with 30 seconds to go or, or a minute to go, uh, the lead becomes insurmountable. They don't make the shots, the other teams do. And all of a sudden, uh, the life goes out of the, the losing team. Many times the, the coach will pull the players and, and the players on the bench, they just, they're just looking up at the clock waiting for the seconds to tick off so they can trudge off the court. Season's over and they know it. And they're devastated and they're just playing out the the final minute. You know what's sad? Some people live that way. They're playing out the string. They're they're, they're watching the clock of life and and the seconds are ticking off and and they're they're broken and, and they're just waiting for the clock to run out so they can... Do whatever they're going to go, wherever they're going to go. That's what happens when we don't have hope. I want to tell you there's another way. There's a hope that's sure. There's a hope that's fixed. And it's grounded in the all-powerful love of God. That's the certainty of our hope. Let me pray. Our God in heaven, we are grateful for this hope that you've given us. And more than ever, we are, we are a people in need of hope. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not in something we can't trust. It's something that might go away. It's something that might have its word broken. No, it's in you. And you, the all-powerful God, died and you rose from the dead. And you loved us even when we were rebelling, when we were shaking our fist in your face. Thank you for the certainty of that hope. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.